0: Hi, I'm Stacia Boyd, the creative director, primary writer, and audio describer for Q Media Productions. This audio describe tour was produced in 2017 for Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Parks Visitor Center, located in Skagway, Alaska. In 1897 and 98, Skagway was one of the two starting points where 20 to 30,000 gold-seeking stampeders set off on an epic and dangerous 600-mile trek to seek their fortunes. The tour is narrated by Bev Standing and David
1: Kaplan. Visitor Center Welcome. About two and a half minutes. Welcome to the audio described tour of the Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park Visitor Center and Museum. In this segment, we'll provide a short introduction. Between the Visitor Center, Museum, and Mascot Saloon, the tour includes almost three hours of audio description. Please note, unless otherwise stated, photos are historic black-and-white images taken during the Klondike Gold Rush era, the late 1800s, and some early 1900s. Overview of the Visitor Center and Museum. Less than 4 minutes. For this overview, I refer to the tactile floor plan located on the surface of the information desk. If you're not at the tactile floor plan, please ask a park ranger to direct you to the correct place. You are now at the end of the information desk, in front of the tactile floor plan, on which your current location is marked with a raised star. Please follow along as I describe the visitor center and museum layout. The entire room is L-shaped, about 55 feet long and about 40 feet wide at the bottom of the L. If you imagine the visitor desk as the center of a clock, at 2 o'clock is a lobby area and where you'll find the hallway that leads to the restrooms and museum. At 6 o'clock is another hallway that leads to the orientation area and theater. At 8 o'clock is a photo opportunity and the Junior Ranger exhibit. At 10 o'clock, in the corner of the room, is the original railroad ticket booth, where passengers purchase tickets. At 1 o'clock, a pot-bellied stove sits about 4 feet from the wall. The Visitor Center building is located in the historic White Pass and Yukon Route Broadway Railroad Depot. Areas inside the Visitor Center are indicated by raised numbers 1, 2, and 3 on the map. The museum and theater are marked by numbers 4 and 5. At the top of the floor plan, between the Visitor Center and museum, is an open breezeway that you cross to access the museum. The theater, indicated at the lower side of the floor plan, is accessed from the visitor center. Both buildings include most of the original construction. Refinished wood floors vary from a rich honey color to a deep weathered brown. In the visitor center, the wainscoting, which covers the lower four feet of the walls, is painted a pale sage green. In the museum, it was restored to its original varnished state, revealing the rich wood grain. Tall, narrow windows are spaced evenly around the room, allowing a generous amount of light to enter. Before you continue your tour, please take a moment to notice the location of the restrooms, indicated by the number 2 on the floor plan. Also, before you move on, a video screen behind the information desk lets visitors know about daily offerings, special tours, and other items or events that might be of interest. Please ask a park ranger for more information about what's available. You can explore the visitor center and museum in any order you wish, at your own pace. If you'd like to begin with the film, Gold Fever Race to the Klondike plays at the top of every hour except 10 a.m. in the theater. The audio description plays automatically on your device after the film starts. Building the Railroad. About three minutes. A wedged-shaped room in the front corner of the building housed the railroad ticket office. Visitors can look into the room either through the ticket window found on the angled wall with a protruding counter or through the glass-enclosed doorway located to the right of the window near the exterior wall. Inside, five floor-to-ceiling panels include historic photos of
0: Building the Railroad. The panel text reads, Building the Railroad was an engineering marvel. When completed in 1900, it transformed a journey of two months into a trip of a few days. By that time, though, the Klondike gold rush was nearly over.
1: Photo description from right to left. First image. Five men stand behind a horse-drawn wagon, clearing a path for the tracks. Next, holding onto ropes so they won't fall from a steep mountainside, workmen use hand tools to cut the route into the rock. Third photo. A dozen men eat lunch outside near the opening of a newly cut tunnel. The table and benches are made from stacked railroad ties. Next, a group of men wearing heavy coats and fur-lined hats sit, stand, or lean on a steam locomotive. Last, a train sits outside the Skagway Railroad Depot while dozens of passengers climb aboard. A quote from a magazine in 1900 reads,
0: During the first month of 1899, a White Pass and Yukon Route train of elegant cars was making regular trips from Skagway to the summit of White Pass the visitor to central Alaska no longer encounters any serious risk in making the trip. In the doorway
1: leading into the ticket booth is a display shelf titled, Bringing History Back to Life.
0: The text reads, Instead of gold seekers, the new train carried freight, passengers, and tourists. Today, the National Park Service preserves the White Pass and Yukon Route Broadway Depot and other buildings to commemorate the gold rush story.
1: A quote from the 1899 book, Directory and Guide to Skagway, Metropolis of Alaska and Gate to the Golden North, reads,
0: The building throughout is lighted with electricity, and the traveling public will find it a pleasure to while away the time in these cozy waiting rooms. It is the most modern-equipped passenger station north of Portland. To the right,
1: a flipbook includes photos of historic Skagway buildings alongside contemporary photos. Images include the White Pass and Yukon Route Broadway Depot, the Mascot and Pantheon saloons, Jeff Smith's Parlor, and the Lynch & Kennedy Store. Orientation. This room is about 30 by 30 feet square. If you've just come down the hallway, turn to the left and stop. If the center of the room is the center of the clock, the following exhibits can be found at the following points. At 9 o'clock, welcome to Skagway. At 6 o'clock, retrace their steps. At 4 o'clock, advice to gold seekers. And in the center of the room, you'll find a touchable topographical map of the two trails stampeders took to the goldfields. Also near the center of the room, slightly to the right towards the four o'clock position, you'll find another tactile map of the visitor center and a tactile overview of other historic buildings in Skagway that are operated by the National Park Service. The center's theater is located on the far side of the room with entry doors at the 11 o'clock and one o'clock positions. If you wish to watch the 25-minute film titled Gold Rush, Race to the Klondike, it includes audio description and is shown every hour on the hour except at 10 a.m. The description will play automatically when the film starts. Welcome to Skagway. About two minutes. In the 9 o'clock position, a large wall-mounted panel shows a map of Alaska, the Yukon Territory, and British Columbia an inset map shows the two trails from skagway to lake bennett this information is also shown on the topographical map panel text
0: reads welcome to klondike gold rush national historical park skagway alaska most gold seekers head up the inside passage to skagway alaska from here they can climb the white pass trail or they can head to neighboring Dyea for the chilkoot trail
1: to the left A photo of gold-seeking stampeders and clinket packers pause for a photo as they climb a
0: steep, rocky trail. An epic journey unfolds. In 1897, word of rich gold deposits in northern Canada sparks a stampede. Tens of thousands of people pass through Skagway, Alaska, on their way to the gold fields. As they climb steep mountains, raft raging rivers, and endure extreme cold, they make a lasting imprint on the world's imagination. Today, the National Park Service preserves this epic story for all to experience.
1: At the far right, a panel from around the world to Skagway shows a map of the world with a blue arrow pointing to Alaska.
0: While most gold seekers come from the United States and Canada, others arrive from more than 40 countries. A quote from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer from July of 1897 reads, The Klondike Stampede is one of the greatest migrations in the history of the world.
1: Topographical map with White Pass and Chilkoot trails. Less than one minute. Located in the center of the room, the map is accessible from all four sides. On the longer sides are angled text and graphic panels with more information about the two trails. The lower edge of the slanted surface for the White Pass trail has one tab for a pullout panel. The side for the Chilkoot trail has two tabs for pullout panels. The White Pass Trail. 1897 to 1899,
0: about two and a half minutes. Do you believe everything you hear? If so, take the White Pass Trail. Promoters claim it's faster and easier than the nearby Chilkoot Trail, but steep, narrow paths and deep mud in the wet fall months make it a risky choice.
1: A quote by a stampeder who had tried both trails in 1897 reads,
0: Whichever way you go, you will wish you had gone the other.
1: To the right. Five photos show locations and challenges of this trail, each with a title and caption. From left to right, 1. Starting out, men stand alongside a narrow dirt road that leads to a forest. Behind them,
0: rows of white canvas tents. Broadway Street Skagway, August 12, 1897. The rush has just began. Gold seekers stop here before heading up to the White Pass Trail.
1: 2. Along the way. A rocky gorge, crowded
0: with men struggling with the weight of heavy packs
1: and supplies.
0: Stampeders encounter tight, twisting trails. Traffic jams, like this one at Porcupine Hill, are common.
1: 3. Death on the trail. Dozens of horse carcasses, with harness and straps still attached, blanket a muddy stretch of trail.
0: Unable to scale the rocky, narrow White Pass trail, thousands of horses die along the route.
1: 4. The summit. A single horse pulls a sled loaded with supplies up a snow-covered hill. Two men walk beside.
0: Stampeders approach the summit of the White Pass Trail, 1898. Most never make it this far.
1: 5. Lake Bennett. Dozens of small wood boats line the shore.
0: If you don't have a boat, build one. Lake Bennett marks the start of the long water journey to the goldfields.
1: On the White Pass side, below the edge of the table, is a pull-out tactile map of the world like the one previously described on the Welcome to Skagway panel. A raised star in the upper left indicates Skagway's location. The Chilkoot Trail, 1897 to 1899,
0: about three minutes. Do you prefer tried and true to new and uncertain? If so, take the Chilkoot Trail, an ancient trading route. It's shorter than the White Pass Trail. It's also steeper, but you'll have a better chance of making it over. A quote below reads, There ain't no choice. One's hell, the other's damnation. To the right,
1: five photos show locations and challenges of this trail, each with a title and caption, from left to right. 1. Starting out, a wide, muddy street is lined with wood-clad buildings.
0: Stampeders head over the Chilkoot Trail from Dai. There, a boomtown grows alongside a small Clinket village.
1: 2. Sheep Camp Several men stand near a tent with a sign that reads Courtney's Store.
0: Sheep Camp is one of the tent cities that sprouts up along the trail. Here, a makeshift store sells supplies and buys outfits from those turning back.
1: 3. The Golden Stairs. A single-file row of Stampeders climb a steep, almost 45-degree, snow-covered path.
0: 1,500 steps carved into the snow and ice take Stampeders to the summit of the Chilkoot Pass. An aerial tramway will haul their supplies for a price.
1: 4. Lake Lindeman. Men with hand tools cut and shape wood along a
0: lakeshore. At Lake Lindeman, the raspy sound of sawing fills the air as stampeders build boats to carry them to Dawson City.
1: 5. Raging Rapids. Men watch from the shore as a small boat navigates rough water.
0: From Lake Lindeman, stampeders pass through dangerous rapids on their way to Lake Bennett. Then it is still hundreds of miles to the goldfields.
1: On the Chilkoot side, below the counter, are two pull-out panels. On the left, a tactile map of Alaska and the Yukon Territories. On the right, a tactile map of the trails from Skagway and the White Pass Trail, and Dyee and the Chilkoot Trail. This tactile map is oriented the same as the topographical map on the table's surface. A star at the lower right indicates where you are in Skagway. A dotted line indicates the White Pass Trail. A solid line indicates the Chilkoot Trail. The town of Dyee marked with a solid circle. At the upper left, both lines come together at the town of Bennett. Retrace their steps. About three minutes. In the six o'clock position, an exhibit panel shows a map of the historic Gold Rush Trails with current-day roads and the U.S.-Canada border.
0: Today, you can retrace the steps of gold seekers at Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park.
1: On the left is a smaller panel titled, The Story Begins. In the dominant image, a well-dressed native Alaskan man named Keish, also known as Skookum Jim Mason, poses for a photo. His coat pulled open to reveal an ornate watch fob and
0: chain. The text reads, August 1896, Keish, his nephew, Kalkukh, And his sister, Shell Claw, and brother-in-law, George Carmack, are deep in Canada's Klondike region. They aren't looking for gold, but on a tip from prospector Robert Henderson, they find it. Lots of it. That moment sparked the Klondike gold rush. Alaska and the Yukon would never be the same. On the
1: right side of the large display, a smaller panel is titled, Be Part of the Story.
0: Talk to one of our rangers about the many ways you can enter this epic story. Here are just some of the things you can do.
1: Four color photos below show various visitor opportunities, each with a caption. Starting with the top photo, a park ranger gives a guided tour of a historic building. The caption reads,
0: Visit an authentic Gold Rush era building, like the Mascot Saloon Museum.
1: In the next photo, a ranger stands leading a walking tour of downtown Skagway. Step into the past. Take a tour with one of our guides. In the third photo, a hiker with a backpack stands outside a very small log cabin.
0: Experience the Chilkoot Trail. It stretches 33 miles or 53 kilometers from nearby Dyea, Alaska to Lake Bennett, British Columbia, the headwaters of the Yukon River.
1: In the final photo, a park ranger poses with a young woman, a clinket dancer, wearing traditional Native Alaskan regalia. The panel text
0: concludes. Have an adventure as a junior ranger. Visit the Information Desk to learn how.
1: Advice to Gold Seekers About two and a half minutes In the 4 o'clock position, a small panel located between a pair of
0: tall windows reads, Guidebooks, newspapers, and manufacturers exploited the public's hunger for all things Gold Rush by selling advice, stories, and goods. In
1: front of the panel, a flipbook sits on a stand. On the floor behind the stand, sits the kinds of things Stampeders carried up the trails, including canvas bags and crates equipped with backpack straps. Feel free to touch and explore the items. The flipbook, titled Klondike Manual for Gold Seekers, contains examples of advice, some good and some questionable, for inexperienced Stampeders. The first open page suggests
0: Book a Balloon. Entrepreneurs promoted all sorts of inventions to ease the trip to the Klondike. In August 1897, inventor Charles Kunzel of Hoboken, New Jersey, floated an idea. Ride hot air balloons. The facing page recommends buy a bike. Some New York entrepreneur suggested a custom-made bike. Another cyclist thought a bike trail would be a good idea.
1: The third page includes
0: the suggestion, stock up on canned beef. Manufacturers jumped on the need for portable supplies that wouldn't go bad. Canned, condensed, and dried food became staples on the trails.
1: The fourth page offered the advice,
0: Save your sacks. Want to get down the mountain fast? Use a burlap sack as a sled. The novel idea eased the hardship of going down the mountain to get more supplies.
1: The second-to-last page advises stampeders to Prepare for the glare.
0: A useful tip from the guidebook, Wear snow glasses. They protect against snow blindness, a temporary but very painful condition.
1: The last page in the flipbook reminds Stampeders, at night, sleep tight, and don't let the bedbugs bite.
0: A sleeping bag is a wise purchase when you're heading into sub-zero temperatures. At 15 pounds, though, it's a heavy addition to your pack.
1: Welcome to Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park Visitor Center Museum. About three minutes. In front of the museum building's entrance, a vertical exhibit panel reads,
0: Welcome to the historic White Pass and Yukon Route Railroad building. Step into the past with hands-on exhibits about an epic journey, the Klondike Gold Rush.
1: A photo in the lower right shows a group of men, railroad employees, standing in front of the train depot but behind a cart loaded with boxes. The men are keeping watch over a gold shipment from the north. To the immediate right is an entrance to a historic vault, the door open to reveal its contents. The vault contains replicas of items that would be there during the height of the gold rush. A large set of scales stand in the center, surrounded by wood crates and trunks. Stacked on shelves are gold bars, with white canvas bags filled with money, and wood boxes. All of the numbered boxes are addressed to the United States Government Assay Office in Seattle, Washington. Below the vertical exhibit panel is a thigh-high panel titled
0: Gold on the Move. Gold came by train to this building en route to San Francisco and Seattle. The vault's thick walls and massive door provided safe storage for bars and pouches of the yellow metal. To the left is a replica of a gold bar. A gold bar is smooth, cold, and heavy. A real bar this size weighs 35 pounds, 15 kilograms, about the same as a car battery.
1: There are two photos on the right. The first shows crates containing the last shipment of gold from Dawson City in September of 1898, after which time the frozen Yukon River would make it impossible to travel until spring. The second photo reveals hundreds of gold bars stacked on shelves at the Seattle Assay Office, which opened in 1898. The caption includes that its first 14 months, the office handled over $15 million in
0: gold. Additional panel text reads, Roughly $400 million in gold came through Skagway during the gold rush era from the late 1890s through the early 1900s. That's about equal to $11,400,000,000 in 2016.
1: Turn with your back to the open vault door and continue forward and slightly to the left, about six feet through the opening into the museum. The tour continues there. Start your journey. The museum's exhibits are located throughout the next two rooms, this one and another located to the right. Each is about 20 feet wide and 40 feet long, with 12-foot high ceilings. From the doorway, if you continue about 6 feet into the room, you'll come to a curved freestanding wall. An angled shelf extending in front of the wall includes a tactile floor plan of both rooms of the museum, along with the exhibit tour route numbered 1 through 10. The tour begins here, in the area marked by the number one on the floor plan. The first two exhibits, in order, are Epic Journey, The Klondike Gold Rush. The next is Gold, The Discovery Story. Epic Journey, The Klondike Gold Rush. About two and a half minutes. In the center of the room is a T-shaped, freestanding wall about eight feet tall. The top of the T, which is 12 feet long, curves across the width of the room. Taking up almost the entire wall, an historic photo shows nine men and one woman, along with a team of sled dogs, standing in a rugged, snow-dotted landscape, looking directly at the viewer. The
0: panel text reads, July 1897. Word of gold discovery in the Canadian Klondike hits the newspapers. Tens of thousands of stampeders pour into Skagway and Dye. From here, they'll hike, climb, and boat more than 500 miles, 800 kilometers to the gold fields. Their treacherous journey will capture the world's attention and transform Alaska. Come join the rush. At the right, a quote from a
1: stampeder named William Schooley, taken from a letter written December 22,
0: 1897, reads, One who had never been in the hotbed of a gold excitement cannot realize how crazy men get. It is worse, I suppose, than the stampede of wild cattle.
1: Also on the right of the curved wall are photos of five of your fellow travelers. Jack London, Chief Isaac, Molly Brackett,
0: Tappan Adney, and Emily Craig. While most seek gold, some seek their fortune in other ways. Look for these five people throughout the exhibition to see how they fared in the rush.
1: Meet your fellow travelers' detailed description, about two and a half minutes. Five photos, displayed vertically, each with an accompanying caption, are described starting from the top. First photo, a young man in his early 20s, wearing a newsboy cap, open-collared shirt, and light jacket, looks directly toward the viewer.
0: Jack London, stampeder and writer, hoping for riches he'll find his gold in stampeder's stories and his own experiences.
1: Next photo, a native Alaskan man. Dressed in western-style business wear, with a hat, tie, and fully buttoned undercoat, stands in front of a wood-clad building.
0: Chief Isaac, Clinkit, entrepreneur. Through his exchange, stampeders who want help carrying supplies up the Chilkoot Trail can hire local Clinkit and Tagish Packers.
1: Third photo. A smiling woman with her hair pulled back in a tight bun, wearing a fashionable skirt and jacket, poses with her hands on her hips in front of a rugged
0: camp. Molly Brackett, Skagway resident and amateur photographer. She'll watch the rush unfold through the lens of her camera.
1: Fourth photo. A man in his mid-thirties, with a dark mustache, flat-brimmed hat, and light-colored explorer's coat, stands in the Alaskan terrain, a leather satchel strung
0: across his shoulders. Tappan Adney, journalist, a writer for Harper's Weekly and the London Chronicle. He is one of dozens of reporters sent to cover the rush.
1: The last photo is a young girl with brown shoulder-length hair, sitting
0: for a formal portrait. Emily Craig, nine-year-old traveler from Denver, Colorado. Emily will brave the steep Chilcoot Trail with her parents and Aunt Lulu, and find time to celebrate her birthday along the way. The next exhibit is directly across from this
1: one. Your tour continues there. Gold, the Discovery Story. About three minutes. A large 5-by-8-foot wall-mounted color photo shows a shallow creek edged by rocky banks gently flowing from a deep green forest in the distance. The river image flows onto a display table that curves out in front of the photo.
0: August 16, 1896. Gold is discovered on Rabbit Creek, deep in the Klondike, Canada's remote Yukon Territory. It will ignite a rush unlike anything anyone has ever seen. A quote from the book... Klondike, The Last Great Gold
1: Rush, 1896-1899, to 1899, by historian Pierre Burton, describes the discovery.
0: The gold was there, lying thick between the flaky slabs of rock like cheese in a sandwich.
1: On the right is an inset panel titled, The Main Characters. It includes photos of three pioneer men and one woman, each with a caption.
0: From left to right they are... Keish, also known as Skookum Jim Mason, a taggish guide, hunter, and trapper. George Carmack, a prospector married to Keish's sister, Shaw Claw. Shaw Claw, also known as Kate Carmack, the wife of George Carmack and sister to Keish. Cow Gaw, also known as Dawson Charlie, Keish's nephew. The panel text continues. Oddly enough, the main characters in the Discovery story weren't looking for gold. Keish, Cow Gaw, Shaw Claw, and George Carmack were on a fishing trip. But on a tip from prospector Robert Henderson, they took a detour to Rabbit Creek. Jackpot.
1: More information about these main characters and their discovery is found on the curved display table. To the left of the table and exhibit is a display case titled, The Discovery Sparks a Rush. Who's Going for the Gold? The tour continues in the next room and to the left at an exhibit titled, Racing Time and Each Other. The entrance is just to the left of the display case as you pass through the doorway. Gold Discovery Main Characters Detail About two and a half minutes At the left end of the table sits a small display box containing four flip cards with more information about the main characters introduced on the exhibit panel.
0: Who made the Discovery? Explore different versions of the Discovery story.
1: Each tile focuses on a specific character's role in the discovery of the gold. The first tile is titled, The Gold is Not the Real Story. It focuses on Keish, also known as Skookum Jim, and his nephew, Kagaw, known as Dawson Charlie.
0: According to Tagish accounts, the discovery story starts with a family reunion. In 1896, Keish and his nephew, Kagaw, went looking for Keish's sister, Xiao Claw. Her family hadn't seen her in two years, and they were worried. The next card, titled
1: It's All About George, offers more information about George Carmack's role.
0: In the early American version of the Discovery story, George Carmack discovers the gold. Keish and Kalga are merely tagish guides traveling with him. The third card suggests Robert Henderson deserves the credit. Early Canadian versions credit Canadian Robert Henderson with the find, because he gave George Carmack the tip about the gold and Carmack never told Henderson the tip panned out. It is likely Carmack didn't because Henderson had disrespected Keish and Calga.
1: The fourth tile presents Shao Claw
0: as the real hero. In an alternative version of some spoken accounts, it is Shao Claw, also known as Kate Carmack, George's wife and Keish's sister, who first spies the gold. But as a tagish woman, she has fewer rights than the men. The tour continues
1: in the next room at an exhibit entitled Racing time and each other. The entrance is located to the left. Gold Discovery Table Information Detail. Just over two minutes. Starting at the right side of the box of flip cards, text reads,
0: When did they find it? 1896, a time ripe for a rush. The United States was emerging from a depression, making instant wealth especially alluring. The cities were growing, and the frontier was disappearing, making Alaska's wilderness especially appealing. Advances in communication made it possible to spread the news widely.
1: A newspaper clipping from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, dated July 17, 1897, boldly announces the discovery of gold in Alaska. Continuing to the right, a tactile map shows where the gold was found, in Canada's Klondike region, roughly 500 miles, or 805 kilometers from here. Additional
0: text reads, What did they find? Placer gold, which can be won from a stream with a gold pan and a world of patience.
1: To the right and slightly above the tactile map is a replica of a miner's gold pan, which visitors are invited to
0: touch. Why was gold so desirable? Prized for color, shine, rarity, and malleability, gold translated into wealth. At
1: the very far right, a short handle extends from the front of the table. Text in an inset window asks the question, What did one ounce of gold buy in 1897? Moving the handle to the left reveals the answer.
0: Ten pairs of lady shoes, 400 glasses of beer, 300 pounds of candy, two and a half weeks pay for a factory worker.
1: The tour continues in the next room at an exhibit titled Racing Time at Each Other. The entrance is to the left. Who's going for the gold display case detail? About one and a half minutes. The display is dominated by a framed formal portrait of a man who appears to be in his mid-50s with gray
0: hair and mustache. George Lytle from Hopkins, Missouri, is going, and he's just one of thousands. Most stampeders are like him from the United States. Many are from Canada. Others are from around the world. Nearly all are middle class, male, and inexperienced. A double-barreled shotgun leans in the left corner. A replica of a shallow
1: tin gold pan rests at the bottom right. In the lower left of the case, a small piece of wood is covered in faint handwriting. Stampeder George Lytle took with him this shotgun and gold pan. While on the trail, he wrote this letter on wood to his sons back home. It reads,
0: May twenty third, 1898. Dear boys in Hopkins, This is Monday morning, and it is raining, so we cannot work on boat, so I have whittled you out this little piece of willow cut in about twenty steps from front door. Be good, boys, and do as Ma says and when I come home, I will bring you back something. Paul Lytle.
1: The tour continues in the next room, at an exhibit titled, Racing Time and Each Other. The entrance is just to the left of the display case. You are n- racing time and each other. This section of the museum is in a rectangular room, about 20 feet wide by 40 feet long, with exhibits displayed around the perimeter, and a curved freestanding wall running through the center. This side of the room includes two exhibits. In order, they are titled, Racing time at each other, and in the boomtowns. Racing time and each other, more than four
0: minutes. July 1897, the rush is on, and you're racing time and other stampeders to get to the gold. First step, plan your route.
1: Starting at the right of the curved wall, an illustration from the San Francisco Examiner, dated July 29, 1897, shows the impact of gold fever on residents and stampeders passing through town on their way to the Yukon. A quote
0: from the paper reads, All that anyone hears at present is Klondike. It is talked in the morning. It is discussed at lunch. It demands attention at the dinner table. And at night, one dreams about mountains of yellow metal.
1: Following the wall to the left, a large map of the west coast of North America shows the two most popular routes from Seattle, Washington, to the Klondike Goldfields in Dawson City, Canada. There's also a tactile version of the map found on the curved table below, titled Getting to the Trails. The most popular route, taken by 90% of gold seekers, was by land and water. Shorter and faster than other routes, about 1,000 miles were on the ice-free Lynn Canal to Skagway, and then only about 500 miles on the Yukon River. Downsides of this route included steep, rocky trails, the possibility of avalanches, and deadly river rapids. The second most popular route, an all-water trip on the Pacific Ocean via St. Michael's, Alaska, and then down the Yukon River to Dawson City, was outrageously expensive. The entire trip was on the relative comfort of a steamboat, but the Yukon River freezes in late fall, stopping all travel until the following spring. At the center point of the curved wall, A digital display plays a slideshow of historic photos from July 1897, including the SS Excelsior arriving in San Francisco carrying Klondike gold. Stampeders must make it to Skagway and Dye over the trails and to the Yukon River before it freezes. If they don't reach it by October, they'll have to wait until spring for it to thaw. Continuing to the left along the curved wall is an 8-foot-tall by 9-foot-wide color photo of Lynn Canal near Haines, Alaska. The photo shows the water route north to the Yukon. Beneath a bright blue sky, sharp, snow-capped mountain rise steeply above a wide, dark blue body of water. The panel's title reads, Beautiful, but Dangerous. A quote from the diary of U.S. Customs Agent William Zimmer dated August 13, 1898,
0: reads, The scenery from Juneau to Skagway was by far the finest on the trip. Hundreds of glaciers on either side, and in a great many cases, extending down to the water's edge, and colored from pure white to bottle green. On either side fringed dark green foliage, and here and there, a stream of water flowing like a silver thread. Beautiful cascades and waterfalls.
1: An inset historic photo shows a small double-decker boat, Its decks crowded with men, moored at a dock.
0: These gold seekers arrived safely in Skagway in 1898. They are lucky. Passage through the Lynn Canal with its frigid waters, violent storms, shifting tides and submerged rocks can be treacherous.
1: The next exhibit is titled In the Boomtowns and is located along the wall directly across from this display. From there, the tour continues clockwise around the room. Getting to the Trails Table Display Detail Less than three and a half minutes. The information on this table proceeds from right to left. Starting at the right end, the text reads,
0: Step 1. Choose a route. So many choices. Your best bet? Take the inside passage to Skagway and Dye, then over the mountain passes. Step 2. Board a boat. Many sail from Seattle, which mounts a public relations campaign to draw gold seekers and their money. Others leave from Tacoma. Portland, San Francisco, and Victoria, British Columbia.
1: In a photo, hundreds of people, mostly men, crowd onto a San Francisco dock, ready to board the SS Excelsior, which was soon leaving for the Klondike. A quote from the 1897 official guide to the Klondike country and the gold fields of Alaska reads,
0: Before dawn, both the lucky ones with tickets and those who could not afford to go began to gather on the dock. The fear that shone in the eyes of the passengers was that of missing the boat and fabulous wealth.
1: Continuing to the left, steps 3 and 4 read...
0: Step 3. Cruise through the Lynn Canal. The Lynn Canal is the longest, deepest glacial fjord in North America. Its frigid waters pierce deep into the heart of a long coastal range. Step 4. Stop in Skagway or Dai. The two boom towns lie at the head of the trails to the gold fields.
1: Next, a photo of young Jack London. Despite a friend's protest, Jack London headed for the Klondike. A letter from a family friend, addressed to his formal name John, reads,
0: Oh, dear John, we feel certain that you are going to meet your death and we shall never see you again.
1: Beneath this section along the table is a pull-out panel that shows the differences a gold rush can make on a specific location. When extended, the panel reveals four photos. In the upper left... Dai in 1897 shows a couple of white tents and less than a dozen men. A photo on the right, taken in 1898, reveals over a hundred wood buildings. In the lower left, two rows of primitive tents and a few men line a narrow dirt path. This is Skagway in 1897. The photo on the right shows the same location in 1898, a bustling street in the city of a frontier town complete with two-story wood buildings, horses, carriages, and women. Continuing down the table to the left is a tactile map of the two most popular routes to the Yukon, and at the very end, a flip book titled First Impressions. First Impressions flipbook detail. Just over two minutes. A scrapbook-style photo album.
0: Text on the front page reads, First Impressions. Newlywed Molly Brackett comes to Skagway in early 1898 with her husband Tom. These photos are her take on the growing boomtown.
1: Each photo includes a handwritten caption. Second page, top photo. A group of men and women stand around a small cart, harnessed to two large dogs. The cart, tipped slightly on its side, holds a litter of puppies. The caption reads, Father, Mother, and Babies. Second page, lower photo. A few rustic buildings line a dirt street. A log cabin in the front right. The caption reads, Looking up Main Street, Skagway. Third page, large photo. Two men hold up a giant fish, well over six feet long and more than two feet wide. The caption reads, A huge halibut caught near Skagway, 1898. Third page, inset photo. Two young boys and a little girl, along with their cocker spaniel dog pose for a photo on the dirt street the caption reads three little chums fourth page top left photo a large horse stands harnessed to buggy water and mountains in the distance a man wearing a dark suit and hat leans forward in the driver's seat the caption identifies the driver captain moore final photo a native alaskan woman in western dress stands in front of a two-story wood building the sign on the building says, Brackets Trading Post. The caption reads, February 1898. In the Boomtowns, about one and a half minutes.
0: Located at the foot of mountain trails, routes to the goldfields, Skagway and Dyea, grow as stampeders pour through. In both towns, money can be made by mining the miners.
1: A quote by journalist Tappanadney, writing about Skagway in 1897, reads,
0: No one pretends to follow the changes that are going on here. Those who have been here a week are old-timers. When the next boat arrives, people will ask questions of us in turn.
1: At the left, an exhibit case holds items that could be purchased for the trails, such as snowshoes, a coffee grinder and coffee pot, as well as a harness for a dog pack. Other items include whiskey and spice bottles, a tobacco can and crampon, a cleat that attaches to shoes for walking on snow. To the immediate right of the case, two snowshoes lean against the wall. Visitors are invited to touch them. To the right and just in front of the snowshoes, a flip book titled Alaska, Gateway to the Klondike, is mounted atop a pedestal. Continuing to the right are two panels, one titled Skagway, at the foot of the White Pass Trail, and the other titled Dyea at the foot of the Chilkoot Trail. Skagway At the foot of the White Pass Trail, about one and a
0: half minutes. Skagway's ice-free harbor and deep valleys make it an ideal gateway to Alaska's interior and the Yukon Territory. Here, tents, shacks, saloons, and stores rise on muddy ground. Beyond, a path winds into the trees towards the treacherous White Pass Trail.
1: The panel photo shows a muddy street scene of rough buildings and tents leading towards bare, snow-covered trees. A quote
0: by journalist Tapanatney reads, Broadway is nothing more than a pair of black, muddy wagon ruts winding around stumps in a rambling way into the woods.
1: Panel text continues asking, What's in a name?
0: Skagway is from the clinkit word Skagway, which means roughed up water, a reference to the gusty north wind.
1: In front of this panel is a flip book titled Boomtowns, Alaska, Gateway to the Klondike. Dyee, at the foot of the Chilkoot Trail, about two minutes. To the right, the Dyee panel shows a photo crowded with dozens of stampeders amidst hundreds of sacks and crates, ready to depart on the Chilkoot Trail. An inset photo shows a small barge, loaded with men and sacks of supplies, approaching the shore. In the top right, a quote from Lulu Alice Craig, a traveler, described 1898 Dyee in her book, Glimpses of sunshine and shade in the far north.
0: Daii was an example of what might be called a mushroom town, so quickly had it sprung into existence. Panel text continues. It's mayhem here. Daii’s shallow harbor makes it difficult for ships to unload passengers and supplies. Small boats carry goods to shore, where they are tossed on the beach and often lost in high tides. This clinket village at the foot of the ancient Chilkoot Trail is quickly overrun by stampeders.
1: The panel text continues, asking, What's in a name? And answers,
0: "Daya is a Tlingit word meaning to pack.
1: A quote below the definition by Stampeder Robert C. Kirk, who arrived mid-August 1897,
0: reads, It would be difficult for one to imagine the confusion that existed when the tons and tons of boxes and sacks and barrels came ashore, and where each one of the 800 passengers was hurrying about looking for the goods that bore his private brand.
1: In the Boomtowns, Alaska, gateway to the Klondike, flip book detail. More than four minutes. Just in front of the exhibit, you'll find a flip book mounted on a pedestal, not counting the cover. This book contains six pages of text and photos about various things available in a Boomtown. Page one. In the Boomtowns, you can get supplies.
0: Most Stampeders arrive with supplies, but some need more. Storekeepers capitalize on newcomers' fears of not having enough to survive the more than 500-mile or 800-kilometer journey ahead. A photo shows a wood-frame building still under construction. Barely a month into the rush, a Skagway storekeeper is ready for business. His sign reads, Will buy, sell, or trade anything. Wanted. Tents, carts, canvas, boat lumber, sleds, boots and shoes. A
1: list shows the dozens of suggested items needed for the trip. Among the items are 8 pounds of flour, 6 bars of tar soap, 200 feet of rope, and of course, a gold pan. Page 2. In the boom towns, you can get a
0: dog. Dogs are in high demand to carry supplies or draw sleds over snow.
1: A photo shows two stampeders, each standing with a dog harnessed to a small drag sled, each loaded with a single crate. Page 3. In the boom towns, you can get fleeced. A photo shows a group of men posed for a photo in a bar. A bearded man standing in the center, wearing a suit and large hat, is identified as the bar owner, Jeff Smith.
0: Early Skagway earns a reputation for lawlessness, in part because of Jefferson's Soapy Smith. He and his gang con, swindle, and cheat inexperienced stampeders. After Smith is shot and killed on July 8, 1898, and his gang is arrested, town leaders promote Skagway as cleaned up and vice-free.
1: Page 4. In the Boomtowns, you can dance, drink, get your laundry done,
0: and more. Almost all of the gold seekers are male. Some businesses, saloons, dance halls, lodging houses, laundry services, and prostitution sprout up to cater to this bachelor culture.
1: Five men, a preteen boy and a woman, stand at the entrance to the People's Theater in 1898. Over the entrance, a banner reads, Tonight, Big Show. The six gay Paris girls. Page 5. In the
0: boomtowns, you can get the almost latest news. Incoming boats bring the Seattle paper with news that's stale, but still welcome. By 1898, Skagway and Dye both boast their own tabloids.
1: A photo of two women and a man standing in front of a two-story wood building, identified as the Skagway News Depot. At the bottom of the page, a row of boys ranging from seven or eight years old to early teens, known as newsies, line up with papers tucked under their arms, ready to sell the news to stampeders. Page 6. In the boom towns, you can go to school. A photo of a woman and about two dozen children, ranging in age from five or six to mid-teens, gathered for a photo in front of a log cabin. The caption identifies Miss Block and her kindergarten class in Skagway, 1899.
0: It's reading, writing, and arithmetic for kids whose parents decide to stay and work in town. A school, as well as banks, churches, and more, appear as Skagway and Dye take on the trappings of life back home. Taking
1: care of business. Just over two minutes. To the right, stacked on the floor in front of the display panels, are crates, a barrel, and a supply sack. A quote
0: atop the crate reads, We saw grown men sit and cry when they failed to beat the tide. A terrible blow to the strongest of men. Monty Atwell, 1898. On the barrel, a quote from stampeder Addison Misner reads, We all had to help unload from the steamer to the barge. Amid shouts of, Hurry, the tide is turning.
1: On the far right end of the exhibit is a small panel titled, Taking Care of Business. The text reads,
0: As stampeders invade their land, Clinkit people adapt. For centuries, they had controlled the Chilkoot Trail, a trading corridor that joined coastal Clinket and interior Tagish peoples. By ramping up their packing business, they are in high demand for their skills and knowledge of the trail. A photo of two men and a boy
1: in front of a wood building. The sign above the door reads, Isaac, chief of Chilkoot's,
0: packing a specialty. The caption
1: identifies the men.
0: Chief Isaac poses in front of his advertising sign with Chief Donawak a leader, a labor organizer, and an entrepreneur. Chief Isaac oversaw a business that helped stampeders transport their goods over the Chilkoot Trail.
1: On the left are two photos. The top
0: image shows shallow canoes sitting along the shore at Dye. The caption reads, Familiar with local waterways, Clinkit people also make money ferrying stampeders between Skagway and Dai and along rivers. Below, a group of men,
1: Clinkit packers, sit or stand on the shore. Their pack animals loaded with supplies. The tour continues clockwise around the room. The next exhibit is titled, Choose Your Trail, and is located to the right along the outside wall. Beep. This section spans the outside back wall of the room and includes two exhibits. The first is titled, Choose Your Trail. The second is, Prepare for the Worst. Choose Your
0: Trail, about two minutes. Panel text reads, When you're racing time and other stampeders, every minute counts. Which trail will get you to the goldfields faster?
1: On the right, a map shows the Dai Chilkoot Trail and the Skagway White Pass Trail in 1898. The older but well-established Chilkoot Trail on the left is shorter than the White Pass Trail, but steeper. Not only is it prone to avalanches, it's difficult for horses to go over the pass. On the longer White Pass Trail, you can use a pack animal, so you don't have to hire packers. However, it is crowded. Trail construction can't keep up with traffic, and heavy rains can make it muddy and impassable. At the lower left of the exhibit, a tactile graph, titled, The Two Trails, Steep and Steeper, extends on an angled panel, illustrating the different elevation and steepness of each trail. On the wall, a quote from the book, The trail led north describes the Stampeders' choices.
0: There ain't no choice. One's hell, the other's damnation.
1: The tour continues moving clockwise past the exit doors and along the room's outside wall. The next display panel is titled, Prepare for the Worst. Prepare for
0: the Worst. About one and a half minutes. In the winter of 1897, miners who make it to Dawson City, the boomtown at the goldfields, nearly starve. The Maldives laid down the law. If you want into Canada, you must have enough food and supplies to survive a year. Roughly 1,500 pounds, 680 kilograms of goods. A
1: color illustration shows a typical stampeder and the amount of provisions required to last a year. The caption reads,
0: It's heavy, and it will cost you. When you cross into Canada, you will have to pay customs on anything bought in the United States.
1: Sitting atop crates found at the lower right corner of the panel are two sensory exhibits that visitors are invited to smell. A crock of sourdough starter used for making bread, biscuits, and flapjacks on the trail, and a jar of fish oil called hooligan oil. Hooligan oil is a staple for clinket and Taggish Packers. It was a flavorful dip for dried fish and used to keep berries, roots, and salmon eggs fresh on the trail. To the right of the crates, a stampeder's shovel, a two-man crosscut saw, and a pickaxe lean against the display. This section of the tour includes both sides of the aisle, along the entire length of the 40-foot room, including a right turn at the far end. At this point in the tour, the challenges of the Chilkoot Trail are exhibited on the left side of the aisle, along the room's exterior wall while the unique challenges of the White Pass Trail are presented on the right. On the back side of the curved wall encountered when you first entered this room, you're invited to select each trail separately. Listen to your first selection in its entirety. Then return to this point and select the other option. Just remember, this is the starting point for each trail. The Chilkoot Trail. The shorter but steeper route. About two and a half minutes. To the right of the the prepare-for-the-worst panel and to the left of an exterior window, a wall-mounted panel shows weary men, both packers and stampeders, loaded with heavy packs of supplies, resting against massive rocks along a steep,
0: mountainous trail. From the tidal flats of Dai, the Chilkoot Trail passes through miles of forest before it climbs precipitously upward. It is stunningly beautiful. It is also dangerously difficult.
1: A quote by fortune seeker Martha Black, writing about her July 1898 journey, reads,
0: As we traveled, we began to realize that we were indeed on a trail of heartbreaks and dead hopes.
1: The next panel, titled Encounters with Nature, is found a few feet further down the aisle, to the right of a window.
0: On the trail, inexperienced stampeders come in contact with nature in ways they never imagined. Some are awed, some curse the mountains, some give up and turn back.
1: Photos show the challenges of nature. A group of men attempt to pull loaded sleds over ice in the canyon near Sheep Camp. Three men, bundled against the cold, walk past deep snow before continuing to the summit. In March of 1898, Stampeder Henry C. Crider wrote in his diary,
0: Snow four feet deep, hard time.
1: That same month, photographer Ernest Kerr wrote in his journal,
0: The canyon is very beautiful in places just wide enough for a sleigh to get through.
1: The largest image on the panel shows a man attempting to lead three muddy horses, heavily loaded with supplies, down a narrow, rocky path. The caption indicates they are caught in a tangle along the Chilkoot Trail. Directly in front of the Chilkoot Trail panels are two curved tables, titled, Heavy Lifting and What's for Dinner? Each display includes tactile and sensory items that would have been used by stampeders. Heavy lifting and what's-for-dinner display detail. About three minutes. Starting on the left end of the curved table, the
0: text reads, How do you move a ton of goods? Because you can only carry so much. You pile up your goods, move some up the trail, then go back for more. The back-and-forth turns a 33-mile, 53-kilometer trip into a 1,000-mile 1,600-kilometer trek.
1: Continuing to the right, a photo shows a single-file line of men, some bent forward carrying large and heavy loads of supplies, up a steep, snow-covered hill. The text asks the question, Who's doing the heavy lifting?
0: For a fee, packers will transport supplies. They have what most stampeders don't, experience, stamina, and strength.
1: Beneath a photo of Chief Isaac, a clinket man in western clothes, an 1898 quote by Northwest Mounted Police Officer Strickland
0: reads, I arranged with Isaac, Chief of the Coast Indians, to have my stores and provisions packed over to Lake Lindeman at the rate of 38 cents per pound. At
1: the right end of the display table and above is a touchable collection of items that made a pack heavy, such as wool blankets, which are heavy when wet, iron cooking pans, a coffee grinder, and other items. The next display table is titled, What's for Dinner?
0: Stampeders don't have time to hunt or fish. They carry lots of dried or canned food, purchased before they hit the trail. For the Tlingit, who have lived in the area for generations, the menu is fresh and healthy.
1: Continuing to the right are tactile examples of two typical meals. The first, bacon, beans, bread, and coffee for a stampeder. The second, consisting of salmon, blueberries, and salmonberries, For a coastal clinket, at the far right end of the table, a photo of writer Jack London. The caption reads,
0: Writer Jack London is on the Chilkoot Trail. Like many Stampeders, his diet lacks vitamin C, and he comes down with scurvy. It's brutal. His joints ache, his gums bleed, and his teeth loosen.
1: To the right, just before you reach the next panel, on a support pillar, a 12-foot-tall floor-to-ceiling ruler is marked in feet and meters.
0: A caption reads, 12 plus feet of snow, or 3.7 plus meters, buries victims alive in the April 1898 avalanche. The next exhibit
1: is titled Extreme Conditions and is located a few steps to the right of the pillar. Extreme Conditions Less than five minutes. At the bottom of a wall mounted panel, an image shows about a dozen men, bundled against the cold, standing at the base of a snow packed trail. In the distance, Figures continue climbing up an icy trail.
0: Summer brings drenching rains and dense fog. Winter brings blinding snow and frigid temperatures. On April 3, 1898, an avalanche brings tragedy to the Chilkoot Trail.
1: A quote from the Sunday Oregonian, dated April 17, 1898, reads,
0: They all seemed to throw up their hands as they were being engulfed. It was a terrible sensation to see the heads disappearing. To the right,
1: Another wall-mounted panel includes an image of an aerial tramway, a series of wires, towers, and pulleys used to carry cargo up the steep mountains. In the photo, a canoe is carried to the top of a steep, rocky terrain. The tramways were part of efforts to make the Chilkoot Trail the leading route to the interior. An inset photo shows hundreds of stampeders moving up the Chilkoot Trail. Also visible in the photo is a restaurant as well as a sign for the tramway. A quote from traveler Lulu Alice Craig reads,
0: Often we could hear men groan aloud in their great fatigue, their faces wet with perspiration.
1: In front of these two panels, a curved table display, titled, Avalanche, includes a wood bin with flip cards. The cards are titled, Weather Reports from the Chilkoot Trail. Continuing clockwise, The corner of the room includes a life-sized display of two pack-laden men bent at the waist due to the weight, climbing a steep, snow-covered trail. A touchable bronze replica is included on the far right display table. The next
0: panel is titled Steepest Climb. The final half-mile up to the summit is the hardest. The trail rises 1,000 feet, 350 meters. In winter, 1,500 slippery, uneven steps cut into the snow and ice are the only way up. A guide rope helps, a little.
1: A quote from A.C. Harris from his book
0: Alaska and the Klondike Goldfields reads, We struggle upwards, sometimes clinging with hands and feet to the slippery mountain. Fortune seeker Martha Black wrote, The trail became steeper. I cursed my tight, heavily boned corsets, my long corduroy skirt, my full bloomers, which I had to hitch up with every step, below, death leering at us. To the right, a panel titled, at the summit.
1: An inset photo shows weary gold seekers fighting cold and fatigue,
0: resting at the summit. The grueling climb marks the start of the next leg of the journey to the Klondike. From here, gold seekers must travel to the lakes that lie at the head of the Yukon River. There are still hundreds of miles to go.
1: A quote from the book Klondike and All About It sums up what the stampeders faced next.
0: The blinding snow rendered it dangerous in the extreme attempt to descend from the mountain toward Lake Lindemann. A misstep meant death.
1: A large photo shows a man sitting in a snow slide at the top of a steep mountain climb. To his right, a long row of climbers extends all the way to the base of the mountain below. The caption reads,
0: Ready, set, jump. This stampeder is about to slide down the mountain. Like others, he'll get more goods. Climb up. Unload and do it all again.
1: Three curved table displays are found in front of this Chilcoot Trail exhibit, titled Weather Reports. Name that sound and What to Keep. If you've completed both the Chilcoot and White Pass Trail exhibits and would like to continue your tour, the next exhibit is located in the first room of the museum. To get there, continue following the aisle clockwise. When you reach the open doorway, continue forward and to the right. The next exhibit is titled Dangerous Waters. Weather reports from the Chilkoot Trail, about three minutes. On the surface of a curved table in front of the panel, a photo shows stampeders digging feverishly through deep snow, attempting to find survivors. To the right of the bin, the headline reads Avalanche.
0: Experienced packers predict an avalanche coming, but inexperienced stampeders ignore the warnings. More than 65 lose their lives. The story captures headlines around the country and scares fortune seekers from the trail.
1: In the bin to the left are four flip cards. Each card includes a quote from a single individual. There are no photos. First tile. Journalist Tappanadney, writing about September 1897.
0: It has been a continual downpour for the past week. My goods are all here, stacked under canvas and rubber covers. But it seems a hopeless task to keep goods dry. Everything is the color of mud men, horses, and goods.
1: Second tile, Traveler Lulu Alice Craig, describing winter 1898.
0: We were held at sheep camp for nearly two weeks by a blizzard. Most terrifically did the wind blow at 60 miles an hour, carrying fine particles of ice and snow in the air, which cut the face almost like glass.
1: Third tile, Louis B. May, writing in his journal at sheep camp, March 22, 1898.
0: Very stormy, and I was not in favor of going up at all. But the rest think it is not stormy on summit. So, away we go. And the further we go, the worse it gets. And when we get to the scales, we find one of those storms which you read about, raging over and around the summit. Fourth tile. A letter from John Morgan to his friend, Charles Harris. Friend Chaz. We retired last night. All well and in good shape. About 2 a.m., we're all aroused by our stovepipe falling down and our tent nearly being covered with snow. We all got up and got out in double quick time to find out we had a snow slide. We put in the rest of the night in shoveling snow from tent and around. It has been snowing for five days and is still snowing hard. About five feet of snow has fallen during this storm. Everybody in camp got up and stayed up the rest of the night looking for buried men. Still snowing and no signs of the storm breaking up. Goodbye, J.M.
1: John Morgan died in an avalanche the next day on April 3, 1898. This was his last letter. Name that sound. About one and a half minutes.
0: The trail soundscape is a mixture of nature, people, and machines.
1: Two handheld audio wands are mounted to the front of a curved table. To the left and right of the wands are volume control knobs. On the surface of the table are six push buttons, three on the left and three on the right. Digital screens inset into the surface identify the sounds as the buttons are pressed. Select a button and listen for the sound on the trail. Upper left, top to bottom, a howling snowstorm, the rumble of an avalanche, and clinking glasses from the makeshift restaurants and saloons. Upper right, top to bottom, the whirring gears of a mechanical tram. Shrieks of delight as gold seekers slide down the mountain sections in order to retrieve and carry up more of their goods, and hello, in many different languages. What to keep display detail. About two minutes.
0: To lighten their loads for the journey to come, some abandon items at the summit. One company left collapsible boats for reasons unknown. Remnants of the boats still sit at the top of the pass. A bronze
1: copy of the final ascent scene is mounted to the surface of the table. To the right, a photo shows hundreds of piles of boxes, bags, and crates along with the stampeders in the snow at the summit of Chilkoot Pass. To the right of the bronze statue, stereo cards present 3D images of Chilkoot Pass when seen through the viewer. A handle on the right of the viewer moves the two scenes into view. The first shows throngs of people, supplies, and tents in front of a snow-covered hill. A single-file row of stampeders climbs the pass. The second image shows the same pass from farther back. The same single-file row of climbers remain in the distance. In the foreground, stampeders loaded with backpacks make their way past snow-covered tents. Such images brought the thrills of the trail into the parlors of friends and family back home. On the far right end of the table, an inset photo shows nine-year-old Emily Craig, who made it to the top. A slightly larger photo shows young Emily traveling on foot among a long line of adults on a snow-covered trail. She stops and looks back directly toward the camera. Her aunt wrote that she rode on a sled drawn by a dog from Sheep's Camp to the scales and from there was borne on the shoulders of their friend, Dr. H. Up the summit of Chilkoot Pass. The White Pass Trail. More than four minutes. A photo shows a single-file line of pack animals, loaded with supplies, traveling along a very narrow, muddy path. On their right side, a dark body of water. On their left, a steep vegetation-covered embankment.
0: The lower but longer route. Some say the White Pass Trail is better than the Chilkoot Trail because it is less steep and horses can carry your supplies. They're in for a surprise. The path that passes for a trail isn't ready for the throngs that arrive in the summer of 1897. Even with improvements, the trail remains difficult and is eventually abandoned. Below the
1: photo, a quote by John Muir, the naturalist, reads,
0: It is about the poorest trail I ever saw, and I have seen many in my life. It is a wild, a reckless trail.
1: On the left, A smaller panel, titled Cold Water, Swift River, reveals a photo of the wide Skagway River with rocky, tree-lined banks and turbulent white water rushing over large rocks. The text
0: reads, At first, the trail winds along the Skagway River. It's scenic, even serene, but crossing the river is risky. The waters run cold and fast, and they are deceptively deep.
1: In front of the panels is a curved table titled Advice for the Trail. At the right end, shown in a graphic image, like a
0: handwritten letter, Marshall Bond recounts a fellow traveler's watery demise. A poor fellow from Seattle named Fowler, with 100 pounds on his back, fell off a log and was drowned. Cleveland, the packed train owner, charged $10 for carting his body back to the beach in his empty wagon that it might be shipped to Seattle for interment. Being remonstrated for his ghoulish greed, he said, Maybe you know more about my business than I do. To
1: the left. A flip panel includes photos of three types of pack animals, a burrow,
0: a horse, and an ox, each loaded with supplies. The text reads, Seasoned gold seeker William Haskell says, One of these pack animals is your best bet for the swampy summertime trail. Lifting the flip panel reveals the answer. While burrows and horses were good on rocks, oxen were best, said Haskell, for muddy traveling, and they could carry a big load.
1: Continuing to the left, The next exhibit wall-mounted panel is titled, Jagged Rocks, Deep Mud.
0: Retreating glaciers followed by the rushing river carved a scene of jagged, tumbled rocks and boulders here. In the fall of 1897, heavy rains paint the scene in thick, endless mud. In the upper right corner of the panel, a quote from prospector William B. Haskell reads, The trail runs along the side of a rocky mountain. On the side of nearly all these hills, the liquid mud was two feet deep, and in some places it ran like a stream. There were sharp rocks and round rocks and great slabs of granite. An inset photo shows three
1: people in a forest, in a thick of trees and mud. The caption reads,
0: While he's capturing the Bedlamont film, photographer Asahel Curtis finds himself caught in the trail's thick-sucking mud.
1: Below the panel and extending into the aisle is a touchable diorama that shows the depth and thickness of the mud. There is a large, foot-sized well that extends about 18 inches in front of the wall. Visitors are invited to place their foot into the diorama in order to measure the depth on their own legs. Moving to the left, the tour continues at the next exhibit panel, titled Taming the Trails. Taming the Trails. About two minutes. On the lower half of the panel, the dominant photo shows a rough road that cuts through the forest. In the middle of the road,
0: a group of men stand with a team of harnessed dogs and mules. To ease travel on the White Pass Trail, Skagway's George Brackett builds a toll road. Others have a wild idea. Build a railroad. One of the great engineering feats of its time, the railroad makes the trail and the toll road obsolete. It also diverts traffic from the Chilkoot Trail, turning Dayi, the boomtown at its base, into a ghost town.
1: One inset photo on the left reveals a sign alerting travelers that soon a toll will be collected. In a photo on the right, a locomotive emerges from a rock tunnel, steaming across a wood bridge above a deep gorge. A
0: quote from the St. Paul Globe reads, Since the Yellow Serpent of the Klondike reared his head and fascinated the people of two hemispheres by the golden glitter of its eyes, there have been many plans devised for getting safely past the barrier of frozen mountains that guard the coveted prize.
1: In front of the panel, a curved table holds a small, tactile model of the White Pass and Yukon Route train, high on the mountain. To the left of the model, visitors can flip through a collection of Molly Brackett's photos, who captured the traffic on her father-in-law's short-lived toll road. The next exhibit panel is to the left, entitled, They Call It the Dead Horse Trail. Molly Brackett Photo Description Cover image. Molly Brackett poses for a photo in a long, full skirt and tight-waisted jacket, hands on her hips, and smiles broadly towards the viewer. Second image. Two people sit in front of a canvas structure, the toll house, which is beside the newly constructed gate road. Third image. A man walks in front of a wide wood gate. Fourth image. A man in a narrow-brimmed hat, identified as the tollkeeper stands in front of a wood building. Fifth image. A smooth, straight road cuts cleanly through the snow-covered Alaskan wilderness. Sixth image. A group of men leading their pack animals past the toll house. Seventh image. A line of pack animals, noses to tails, carry supplies down Wagon Road. They call it Dead Horse Trail. About three minutes. In the dominant image, A bearded prospector leads a heavily laden pack horse directly forward. It gives the impression that the man is looking right into
0: the viewer's eyes. In the summer of 1897, thick mud, slick rocks, and steep cliffs proved deadly for overloaded, overworked horses. Many fall to their deaths. The White Pass Trail gets a new name, the Dead Horse Trail. A quote by Jack Newman, a packer on the White Pass Trail, says I must admit that I was as brutal as the rest but we were all mad, mad for gold, and we did things that we lived to regret.
1: An inset
0: photo shows a group of burros being led
1: along a rock trail, their small stature dwarfed by enormous loads.
0: The caption reads, Stampeders often overload their pack animals. When they do, straps and box edges cut into the animal's flesh.
1: In front of the panel is a curved table labeled Witnesses to Tragedy. On the table... A box bin contains flip cards with accounts of the animal's fates on the trail. The final exhibit panel, just to the left, is titled The Trail's Victims. The dominant photo shows a seemingly endless view of horse carcasses strewn in a ravine, entangled in brush and rocks. In front of the panel, enclosed in plexiglass, a horse skull lays on its side, the
0: head still wearing a harness. The text reads, Thousands of horses perished on the White Pass Trail. Their skeletons became reminders of the trail's hardships and stampeder's greed.
1: Below, a quote from journalist Tappanadney reads,
0: The opening of the White Pass as a summer trail was not a blunder. It was a crime. It is something that they have called a trail marked by the dead bodies of 3,000 horses and by the shattered health and the shattered hopes and fortunes of scores, nay, hundreds of men. Continuing
1: clockwise around the Trails Victims Exhibit, you have completed all of the exhibits in this room. The tour continues back in the first room of the museum. As you round the corner, the doorway will be in front of you to your right. Pass through the doorway and keep to your right. The next exhibit is titled, Dangerous Waters. Witnesses to Tragedy, bin description. About one and a half minutes. On top of the curved table, a bin contains four flip cards with text only. Each includes a quote. First card, Stampeder Mont Hawthorne.
0: Seeing all them dead horses like that made me feel pretty sick. I was glad it wasn't warm weather. Seems like the smell would have been more than a man could stand.
1: Second card, William Henry Truwalla Olive, writing in his
0: diary. Once a horse and sled that had taken the corner too fast were precipitated to the bottom of the gorge below. When the sled slid over, the horse frantically held on, but at last with a scream, almost human, over it went, which was the last of that outfit.
1: Third card, Stampeder Fred C. Thompson, writing in his diary.
0: Parties coming off the Skagway Trail tell me there are enough dead horses and mules along the trail to lay them side by side, so that one can walk on horse flesh the entire length, fifty miles.
1: Fourth card, John Muir, naturalist.
0: The horses' feet get caught in the hidden holes between the rocks, and in their efforts to free themselves, some of them broke their legs.
1: Back in the first room, this area is about midway down the first long wall. In the center of the room, a freestanding wall presents the first exhibit in this section, titled Dangerous Waters. On the opposite wall, to the left of the doorway, is the second exhibit in this section, titled Build Your Boat. Dangerous Waters. More than four minutes. This exhibit is on a freestanding wall located in the center of the room. An eight-foot by nine-foot photo dominates the wall. In the photo, three men in a small boat, two holding oars and one grasping the tiller, attempt to navigate a rapid-filled river. Two quotes are placed on the photo. The first by Emma Kelly, a reporter for the Kansas City Star. Writing in Lippincott's Monthly Magazine.
0: On we went, faster and faster yet. The wild waves rocked and rolled our boat and occasionally broke over us. The spray rose so thick and high, we could not see the shore. It was simply glorious.
1: The next, a description
0: of the White Horse Rapids
1: from the book Klondike and All About It.
0: Along this section of the river, many graves dot the shore, niches cut in the frozen ground. Mark the lonely graves of fathers and sons whose return is waited for in vain.
1: On the left, on a wall placed at a right angle to the exhibit, a 90-second film depicts Alaskan waterways, showing what stampeders encountered on the water part of their journey. It contains no dialogue and plays automatically when a person enters the area. The film combines both new color footage with archival black and white footage of the roiling river. The archival footage was shot in 1899 and shows a small boat navigating the rapids. The film's caption reads in
0: part, Once over the passes, stampeders must travel hundreds of miles on the Yukon River.
1: In front of the exhibit, facing the video screen, is a partial mock-up of a boat the same size and design visible in the main photo. Visitors can enter the boat and sit on the bench to get a sense of size, as well
0: as watch the film. To the right, the exhibit's panel text reads, Once over the mountain trails, the journey is far from over. Ahead lie hundreds of miles on the Yukon River. Its flowing waters are punctuated by furious rapids, where two minutes of terror can save two days of carrying a boat overland. Anyone who continues on will need nerves of steel. A quote from prospector William B. Haskell reads, We pushed off, and in two minutes my heart failed me and I would have given all the gold I ever expected to get in these regions had I stayed out. An inset photo on the
1: left shows a small barge loaded with supplies. The caption reads,
0: Sinking, a common sight. In the first few days of the dash down the river, one hundred boats sink and ten perish in the White Horse Rapids. Another inset photo
1: shows two men kneeling on the ground. Around them, clothes and supplies hang on a makeshift lean-to. The caption reads,
0: trying out after a wreck in the whirling White Horse Rapids.
1: To the right, a small panel titled The Water Journey Through Canada has a map that shows the extent of the distance stampeders still had to travel to the gold fields once they reached the Yukon River. Below the panel, mounted to the display, is a tactile version of the same map. Photos of journalist Tappan Adney and writer Jack London are also
0: on the panel. The text reads... Both journalist Tappan Adney and writer Jack London brave the White Horse Rapids. Adney emerges drenched and shaken from the wild whirlpool. London nearly loses his boat.
1: The tour continues on the opposite wall from this display. The next exhibit is titled, Build Your Boat. Build Your Boat. About three minutes. A ten foot wide by five foot high photo dominates the display. Dozens of small, newly constructed boats crowd a muddy lakeshore. Across the narrow water,
0: hundreds of canvas tents crowd the far bank. At Lakes Lindemann and Bennett, just over the mountain passes, sawdust and hammering fill the air. Stampeders are building boats for the journey down the Yukon River. But by the time they get their supplies here, the lakes are frozen. It will be months before they can leave.
1: In the upper right corner of the photo, a quote from Flora Shaw. Correspondent for the Times of London.
0: To begin with, the great majority of the boats are being built by men who have never built boats in their lives before. They are to be manned and navigated, in the majority of cases, by men who have never been in a boat in their lives before.
1: To the right, in a photo array from an article, journalist Tapanadney captured the process to build a boat. From sawing the logs, to using hand tools, to shaping the boards and beams, to assembling the craft and finally carrying it to the water. Additional text reads,
0: In their frenzy for lumber, Stampeders strip the forest bare, impacting the landscape for decades.
1: To the left of the display, a smaller panel shows hundreds of tents crowded together by the lake, snow-capped Alaskan mountains in the distance.
0: Forced to wait until the Yukon River thaws in the spring of 1898, Stampeders stake tents and settle in. There is plenty to do to prepare for the river journey ahead.
1: A quote from traveler Lulu Alice Craig from her book, Glimpses of Sunshine and Shade in the Far North, described Lake Lindemann.
0: We wandered through this little city of tents of twelve to 15,000 people, finding interest in reading the names of the tents, which represented many, if not all, parts of the world.
1: Inset. A photo of nine-year-old Emily Craig, Lulu Craig's niece, looking over her shoulder in a family portrait. The caption reads, Emily Craig,
0: one of the few kids on the trail, celebrates her birthday at Lake Lindemann. Her parents and aunt throw her a small party. She even gets a cake.
1: The tour continues, moving counterclockwise around the room. The next exhibit panel, titled At the Goldfields, is located on the outer wall of this room. At the Goldfields. About two minutes. A wall-mounted display panel depicts a wide dirt street crowded with men and a few women. It's flanked on both sides by frontier one- and two-story structures.
0: This is Dawson City, the boom town at the heart of the gold fields. Here in 1898, stampeders walk the streets in shock because after an epic 500-mile, 800-kilometer journey, they learn that all the good claims have already been taken.
1: A quote from gold seeker Frederick Palmer, who arrived at Dawson City in 1898 from his book In the Klondike.
0: There was something pitiful as well as ridiculous in the disappointment of the pilgrim who had believed everything that he read in the press agent's pamphlets. In front of the panel,
1: a small case includes items a miner would have used or wanted a gold pan, small miner's axe, a portable scale, candle holders, and of course, gold. In front of the wall mounted panel is a small, curved table titled, It's Hard to Hit Pay Dirt. To the right is a panel titled, What do you do when your dreams are shattered? And to the left is a large, spinnable wheel titled, Wheel of Chance. If you'd prefer to continue your tour, continue moving counterclockwise around the room. The next exhibit is titled, An Epic Journey Lives On, and is located on the back side of the freestanding wall. What to do when your dreams are shattered? About one and a half minutes. An inset photo shows a group of men covered in dirt, digging in a mine shaft.
0: Dog-tired, disheartened, and in debt, many gold seekers go home, but many stay and mine, hoping they'll get lucky and hit pay dirt. A quote from prospector Joseph Ledoux reads, The miners here are a very mixed class of people. They represent many nationalities and come from all climates. Their lives are certainly not enviable.
1: A graphic image reproduces a clipping from the Klondike Nugget newspaper, dated June 23, 1898. It reads,
0: The newcomer in Dawson. There are many men in Dawson at the present time who feel keenly disappointed. They have come thousands of miles on a perilous trip, risked life, health, and property, spent months of the most arduous labor a man can perform, and at length with expectations raised to the highest pitch have reached the coveted goal, only to discover the fact that there is nothing here for them. At the bottom of the
1: panel, the question is asked, How did your fellow travelers fare? How did your fellow travelers fare? About two minutes. The same photos of the five individuals introduced at the beginning of the tour in the Meet Your Fellow Travelers panel are shown on here, along with the accompanying text of what happened to them in the years after the Klondike Gold Rush era. Klingit Chief
0: Isaac Chief Isaac dies in die of unknown causes in January 1899. His only possession is a fish trap valued at $100. His widow Mary is 38 years old at the time of his death. Writer Jack London Jack London hopes to strike gold but soon ends up heading home, broke and sick with scurvy. Rich with stories of his experience, Jack becomes a world-renowned writer before his death in 1916 in California. Journalist Tapanadney. Tappan Adney reports on the scene in Dawson City for Harper's Weekly, then heads to Nome to cover the next gold rush. After becoming a naturalized citizen of Canada, Tappan moves to New Brunswick, where he dies in 1950. Photographer Molly Brackett In late fall 1898, Molly Brackett travels with her family to Atlin, Canada, 35 miles, 56 kilometers northeast of Skagway. She photographs a new gold rush there. After more adventures, Molly settles in New Hampshire and dies in 1939. Nine year old Emily Craig. Emily Craig reaches Dawson City with her family on July 16, 1898. Her aunt writes that Emily is delighted with her free open life in the Klondike. At age 20, Emily marries and moves to Victoria, British Columbia, where she lives to age 95.
1: It's hard to hit pay dirt. About two and a half minutes. Starting on the left end of the curved table, the text reads
0: Most of the gold isn't on the surface. It is more than 10 feet, 3 meters below. Between you and the gold are frozen mucking gravel. There's endless digging, followed by endless hours of standing in a cold stream as you wash the gravel, praying to see the glint of gold. To the
1: right, a hand-drawn diagram by miner Frederick Wombwell shows the depth and levels miners must reach in order to potentially find gold underground. An excerpt taken from Johnson's Universal Cyclopedia, under the entry for the Klondike River, reads,
0: The ground here freezes solid, and only two feet of it thaws in summer. The miners build fires over the area where they wish to excavate, and when these have burned about 24 hours, remove the softened muck, and then light fires again. In this way, they sink a shaft to bedrock, and then tunnel by the same process. This method of mining is expensive, and not all claims are rich enough to pay the cost. Often the shafts do not strike a pay streak.
1: Continuing to the right, an image of four men standing over a water-filled wood trough. One holds a gold pan, pouring water back into the trough.
0: Miners wash gravel in a sluice box, then use a pan to test for the glimmer of dust.
1: The next photo shows a small group of men in a mercantile store, crowded around a small set of scales. One of the men holds
0: a small bag. In Dawson City, you can tell who has hit pay dirt. They carry bags of gold dust in their pockets and use it like cash. This miner is buying groceries. At the
1: very far right of the table, a photo shows dozens of mining sluices. Wood troughs used to move water, often supported on wood scaffolding, leading to
0: and from a river. The caption reads, Water-carrying sluices crisscrossed the Klondike landscape of placer mines.
1: Wheel of Chance. About one minute. At the left end of the At the Goldfields exhibit stands a wheel of chance. You can spin the wheel and learn the fate of your adventure. There are eight possible results, described here in the order from most to least likely.
0: 1. You turned back while on the trails. 2. You turned back at the rapids. 3. You made it to Dawson City, found employment, but did not mine. 4. You lost your money in Skagway and had to go home. Five. You found some gold, but lost money overall. Six, you found enough gold to break even. Seven, you died, most likely by avalanche or drowning. Eight, you became truly wealthy from gold. The greatest probability
1: is that you turn back. The smallest chance is that you become wealthy. An epic journey. This section of the tour is located on the back side of the freestanding wall and along the long outside wall of the room. A quote on the wall by historian Pierre Burton, in his book, Klondike, The Last Great Gold Rush, 1896-1899, to 1899,
0: reads, The North was flung wide open by the Stampeders.
1: The area includes two exhibits. The first, on the left, on the backside of the freestanding wall, is titled, An Epic Journey Lives On. The second is on the outside wall to the right, and is titled, The Gold Rush Changes Alaska Forever. An epic journey lives on. Less than three and a half minutes. An almost eight-foot tall and nine-foot wide color poster for the play, Heart of the Klondike, covers almost the entire wall. At the bottom, close to the floor, graphic poster text reads, A powerful and picturesque scene on the Yukon River. A dramatic illustrated scene shows the grandeur of the Alaskan wilderness, including a deep rocky gorge thick forest and in the far distance, snow-capped mountains. At the right, a young woman kneels in front of a grizzled miner, looking up and gripping his arm as if asking an important question. At the left, two men stand next to a sluice, searching for gold in the fast-moving water flowing down from the mountain. On the left, a smaller panel, titled, An Epic Journey Lives On, reads,
0: The Klondike Gold Rush was a fantastic spectacle that captured the world's imagination. It inspired plays, poems, songs, novels, movies, even an ice cream bar. Over 100 years after the rush ended, the epic journey continues to inspire today.
1: An inset color photo shows a bearded, modern-day park ranger holding a Klondike bar, which was created in the early 1920s by the Isley Dairy Company in Mansfield, Ohio. At the top of the panel are the lyrics for the 1897 song, To Klondike we've paid our fare.
0: To Klondike we've paid our fare, Our golden slippers we soon will wear. We'll live on pig and polar bear, And gather the nuggets we know are there.
1: At the bottom of the panel are lyrics from the song, The Gold Rush, written in 2009 by the band Coldplay. The lyrics read,
0: I went digging for gold, I went down to the valley over by the mountain where the prospector had been told, I'm marching through the cold, we're marching through the cold.
1: In front of the exhibit, a curved table titled See, Hear, and Watch includes, from left to right, a book visitors can flip through with various images and collectibles of movies, TV shows, books, cartoons, and more that were inspired by The Gold Rush, a music box which plays a Gold Rush-inspired tune. And a small TV monitor plays a short clip of the Charlie Chaplin film, The Gold Rush. The final exhibit in the tour is located directly across from the Epic Journey exhibit and is titled, The Gold Rush Changes Alaska Forever. See, hear, and watch the impact of the Klondike on popular culture. Detail description. About two minutes. In the middle of the curved table, sits a small music box. Lift the lid to hear 1897's Chilcoot March, as Stampeders heard it 100 years ago. On the right end, a five-minute video clip from Charlie Chaplin's 1925 film can be played by pressing a small round button, found at the lower left of the video screen. The video is not described in detail, but in the clip, Charlie Chaplin is dressed as his iconic character the little tramp, in baggy pants, a tattered but beloved topcoat, and his bowler hat. On his back, a small backpack. In his hand, a thin curved-handled cane. Chaplin trudges, slides, slips, and falls through the snow in search of gold. On the left, a flip book titled The Klondike Inspires, which is not described in detail, includes items such as book covers of classics, like Jack London's Call of the Wild, a scaled-down movie poster from Charlie Chaplin's classic film, The Gold Rush, and another 1920s movie poster of Mae West, starring in Klondike Annie. All are items showing how the history and story of the Klondike Gold Rush impacts popular culture. The Gold Rush changes Alaska forever, more than four minutes. In a narrow corner between an exterior window and a small closet that extends into the room, an exhibit panel reads,
0: The Klondike Gold Rush was sudden and overwhelming. It and others that followed changed Alaska as prospectors and settlers poured into the last frontier. Mining altered the landscape. Alaska natives became a minority in their own land. Trade trails became gold trails. Gold trails became railroads. Roads became highways. And Alaska became connected forever, to the nation and the world.
1: Four modern-day full-color photos are located below the panel text at 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 8 o'clock, each one with a label. Starting at 10 o'clock, moving clockwise, they are population, environment, transportation, and resource extraction. Population. Hundreds of people fill the city streets of Anchorage during a summer festival.
0: 20 years of stampedes followed the klondike gold rush they brought new people and spawned new communities in 1912 alaska became a territory and in 1959 a state with statehood native peoples united to seek title to lands that had been wrested from them their activism led to the 1971 alaska native claims settlement act
1: environment a broad crystal clear river flows across the image in the forefront. Delicate pink and blue flowers hang over the water. Below, bright red sockeye salmon swim beneath the surface. On the far shore, bright green grass and trees fill the background, while a fisherman stands ankle-deep in the water, holding his rod and reel.
0: Over time, views on how and where we extract natural resources like gold or oil changed. To protect Alaska's landscapes for future generations, in 1980, The Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act set aside millions of acres for new parklands, wildlife refuges, and wilderness preserves. Alaska's new rush became tourism.
1: Transportation. A cargo plane, having recently taken off, flies over a cargo ship loaded with bright orange, blue, and green shipping containers.
0: In 1900, the White Pass and Yukon Route Railroad, built to carry gold seekers to the gold fields, connected the Klondike with Skagway and the world beyond. That marked the start of new transportation systems that by the 1940s would make travel more dependable and Alaska more accessible. The Alaska Railroad, the Alaska Highway, and the Alaska Marine Highway.
1: Resource extraction, an oil pipeline supported on wood pylons, snakes across a
0: green Alaskan meadow. When the Klondike Gold Rush captured the world's attention, it also captured the attention of fortune seekers who saw opportunity in extracting not just gold, but other natural resources. In 1968, a new resource drew the world's eyes, oil. Once production became economically viable, oil, like gold 80 years earlier, transformed the state. As you conclude your tour of the
1: museum, the last display, a video screen, is on your left as you move towards the museum's exit. It plays a continuous slideshow of historic and modern photos of gold rush locations. The slideshow is not described in detail. However, it includes historic black and white images next to their modern-day color counterparts, highlighting the retreat of glaciers, increased vegetation, and the development of the railroad over time. Museum tour conclusion. About one and a half minutes. Thank you for visiting Klondike Gold Rush Visitor Center and Museum. To exit the museum, Continue moving forward, past the video on your left and wall on the right. You will soon return to the first location by the vault. Just before you leave this room, you'll find a curved table with pencils and blank 3x5 cards. You're invited to share your thoughts on your visit today. To return to the visitor's desk, continue past the curved table and turn to your right. Leave through the exit door. Cross the open breezeway, about 12 feet and then enter the next building. As a reminder, a water fountain and entrance to the restrooms will be in front of you. The ladies directly forward, the men's forward and to the left. Once inside the next building, turn to your right and follow the narrow hallway back to the welcome area.